This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host and mysterious black leather-gloved killer. It's Hank. They're isotoners, in case you were wondering. I just got them. They're very comfortable, and they're very warm. Good evening. It's Slasher Out Your Ass Month. We still have not come up with a title. <laughs> Never got there. Halloween excuse episodes. That's yep. what I'm calling them. Uh, we're paving a bloody highway until we get to Halloween, where we're going to talk about slashers some more oh that's i spoiled it i non-stop, gave away the spoiler non-stop all month we'll be talking about slasher films and what better way to talk about the slasher genre than to to really get into its roots you got to get deep into its roots and no we're not talking about fucking halloween i refuse to ever talk about halloween on the show again we're going to talk about the birth of slashers through european cinema specifically italian giallo pictures and uh Let's just go ahead and like get into the first one because uh, the first one we'll be talking about is one of the granddaddies of them all, one of the uh, original uh, Giallo films. Do you want to even talk about where Giallo comes from? The pulp novels, and it means yellow because the pulp novels are yellow and all that garbage. I mean, I think you just did a lot of justice to it. This is brief, and if you've listened to Death by DVD, especially the uh, the Video Nasties episodes, we went back a long time ago and did Mario Bava and... um. Hatchet for the Honeymoon and talked a lot about what Giallo is and where it comes from. If you don't want to consider what we're about to talk about, the first Giallo film, I think the only other option is The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which is one year earlier, also made by Mario Bava. He is the grandfather. I think he is the precursor to it. And funnily enough, despite it all coming from the the word yellow and the trade paperbacks that were all about crime and crime novels, most of early Giallo and core Giallo comes from Agatha Christie novels. So, I mean, it's... Everything Italian's kind of a bastardization of something else because what the Italians would do is take something they really liked and then make an Italian version of it. So that's really Italian film history. They rip things off. Yeah. That's what Italians did best in the 70s and 80s, rip shit off, and they were fucking amazing at it. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal work. Yeah, I mean, like, look at their uh, history of Mad Max Road Warrior ripoff films. There's so many of those. There's so many Sword and Sorcerer movies after Conan came out. I mean, which Lots one, of ripoff um, movies. I always get the name wrong but one of the uh, Man With No Name series films by Sergio Leone was sued by Akira Kurosawa and was delayed for four years, and I think like 50% of the royalties went to him because they ripped off Yojimbo. Good and the Bad and the Ugly or Fistful of Dollars? I think it's it's Fistful of Dollars. Yeah, it's whatever was remade with David Patrick Kelly in the 1990s with Michael Imperioli and Bruce Willis. There's a weird Oh, uh, God, Last Man Standing, that thing? Yeah, that also is a straight-up remake of all three of these. It's weird. None of these movies are actually what we're talking about tonight, but uh, the, the point is how great the Italians could rip something off. And almost, I wouldn't always say better, but a lot of the times you would get something maybe a little bit more flashy. Definitely more arty-farty, and that's why we love Italian cinema. I am not always the hugest fan of Jalo films. I admit it right now. I do like a nice big chunk of them. A lot of the more famous ones, when you start getting to the little more obscure ones, I get a little less interested. A lot of the less talented directors out there. And there are people who dedicate their lives to studying Jalo films. I'm just not one of them. Because if you've seen like a few of them, you've seen them all. Because a lot of them get really goddamn boring. And they are just, in an essence, like Agatha Christie novels of just... Someone is killing people. Which one of these characters is doing it? And if there's no like outside interesting elements to it, they just kind of end up being 
Euro trash cinema and it's just like, eh, this is not doing much for me. Like, I'm not a huge fan of Torso. I just am not. I Torso. find it kind of bland. It's got a great trailer, though. Torso! It's one of the best trailers of all time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just love the guy that yells, Torso! Several times. One of the big faults, I think, when it comes to finding a general interest with Giallo is how and we recently were discussing porn in general, um, just the art of porn, I guess you could say, on a recent episode of Death by DVD. Some are so sexual that you get lost in, like, the Jess Franco pube close-ups, which is uh, uh, most... Giallo have a trademark of a black gloved killer that's wearing a mask, a black shape. You can't figure out what's going on. That was obviously borrowed, stolen by John Carpenter for the whole idea of the shape and what Michael Myers' presence was in the original Halloween. And then you have Giallo that's just really greasy and horny, and, and then somebody dies, and you're like, oh shit, I can't believe they died. They were fucking. It was this was a fuck movie for a while. So you've got that thin line of fuck film and then really artistic, uh, ultra violent slashers and are proto slashers and that's one of the really like wild things when you start going back even to some of these earlier films like we're going into 1964 with what we're going to be discussing tonight and it's not in your face gore you know but there are some really shocking implied kills that for the early 60s I mean it's it, Italian so censorship was a little bit different but still at the same time it was like shit like one of the claw killings even makes you jump a little and that's impressive for its era and that's I think one of the things that helped craft the American slasher is just how vibrantly beautiful but yet shocking and almost decadent with violence that Giallo and the early Giallos turned out to be, especially Bava and Argento. And uh, the one we'll be talking about is Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace. I, I can't say definitively that this is the first appearance of the black leather glove killer uh, phenomenon that was in a lot of Italian Giallo films, but it's definitely one of the most early versions of it. This film is so goddamn pretty it makes me weep. Uh, the opening credits alone are just fucking beautiful, and Bava could do it like nobody else. Um, outside of this, check out um, his movie Danger Diabolique. It is just an amazing sight to behold. The story itself ain't great, but the what he does with the story and how he directs everything is what makes it amazing. And Blood and Black Lace is no exception to this, because as far as a film, like a narrative story goes... I don't really give a fuck about the story of Blood and Black Lace. I just don't because it's a faceless killer. He's literally wearing a um, I pr probably shouldn't gender the the killer in this film, but we're going spoilers. OK, she uh, <laughs> they uh, I mean, what, but yes, I mean, and also several killers somewhat. Um, it's not a real quite as much as Twitch of the Death Nerve, but I mean, there is some like some swapping off of who's doing some killing in this film. But overall, what he has done with it is turn it into this beautiful tapestry of lights and colors and just uh, you use the word earlier of decadent. And that's probably the one of the best ways to describe Bava's use of color and visuals in his style of filmmaking is it's just so goddamn pretty. It's so artfully done. Um Argento has always been given props for how he uses color, how he directs murder as art. Uh, he stole that all from Bava for the most part, and it shows in this film. I, I would say that most of the, the 70s Giallo films and up and through the 80s when they kind of stopped making them um, were pretty much all based around what Bava did and how amazingly he created this tone. The tone is what's so important about it. 
uh, with the music that's used, the um, the haunting music at that, the uh, like um, I was talking about earlier, but like the opening credit sequence of this film really sets the stage so well of just kind of slowly introducing these characters with this music, this dreamy sort of like moany ass music playing in the background that just really opens everything up and it's um almost like you're getting ready to watch uh, like a play or an opera getting ready to unfold in front of your face and that's it's funny you what love you that do sequence. Get. i mean that's I, I think the opening i agree with everything you said but there are uh, there's the american version and the italian version and the italian version is very beautiful and that's what mario baba intended on and what he wanted to be done but they thought it was a bit boring for us yanks so there's a really crappy animated one i mean it's still kind of cool and it fits its style because it's 60s animation a little bit but... more Saul bass kind of a vibe going on as opposed to what baba originally crafted it, it really kind of takes away and makes it almost seem like it's going to be lighthearted what you're getting into and I guess you could take it that way with the colors and the scheme but it still is rather dreadful and the, the amount of violence you're exposed to I think is really just off the top I mean this is where you look at 1970s and early 80s slashers that have 12, 13 body counts and this is where you get it from this is where I think people learned it's okay to kill more than one person. That you can just whack the whole cast. Fuck it, kill everybody. What's the <laughs> who cares? And that's usually unheard of. Like you can't do that. You can't kill everyone. No, Baba did, and he didn't care. And he did it multiple times, like Bay of Blood. Just everybody, and and not even really time to get an attachment. Just hey, you saw that girl with the short hair. Now she's dead. How do you like that? And it, it works though, and it works for, it works for the contrast of the beauty and what you're exposed to. And you were talking about. You know, the story is not uh, incredibly important. It's I, not bad. It just doesn't do anything for me because it's I'm not a murder mystery guy. I don't care about figuring out who a killer is and all these di different interpersonal connections that these characters have. I find it a little drab and boring. But overall, I don't I guess my point is I, I don't particularly care for the story, but what's going on around it is what makes it so interesting because the characters themselves are all incredibly flat um, they're very much archetypal at times. That's where I thought things began to get a little bit interesting, that the story uh, is a bit drab, but what you get with the characters is a really, to me, I thought interesting switch, because most of the feminine roles end up becoming more masculine roles, and the masculine roles switch with the feminine roles, and what you really learn and are uncovering here is the underbelly sort of of society, because all these characters are sort of upper echelon, and one person is a, a fashion designer, and one owns one of the most famous antique stores in town, but they're addicted to drugs, and one of the fashion models is a drug dealer, and uh, was going to have an abortion or had an abortion and there's all of these layers and uh, you start seeing how everything is beautiful and neon and perfect in the world but you know like the David Lynch thing there's a seedy underbelly it's ants ants are everywhere uh, but they're beetles Hank not ants there's beetles, beetles and ants and fishes in the percolator I should have lit another cigarette if I was going to do a David Lynch impersonation. But despite how beautiful things are, there's always a dark underbelly. And I think that really is the representation and why, like, the stories a bunch of people are getting killed by somebody in a mask with gloves on and a hat. And that's your story. All of these characters start turning on each other. They start coming up with lies, trying to cover up their image that they don't want to be exposed to the public. And I think that's kind of the lesson you learn at the end of the day is you can run, but you can't hide from the skeletons in your closet sort of thing, which is really a common theme. Like, Bava always had a lesson, especially, I keep referencing it, but, like, Bay of Blood's pretty much like an, an early environmental horror giallo. So he touched upon a lot of topics and I think was a little bit more philosophical and profound than people like to give him credit for. Man, we appreciate the, this movie on completely different levels. Because to me, it's, it's so much more 
more about the photography and like even down to the murders as violent as they can get. And it's more of like an implied violence. It's the pain that is going to like you assume is happening. It's not so much gore as like somebody's face getting put on on like a uh, like a furnace plate. It's artfully done. There's not much, there's like not really any blood, but you can like envision that in your own head and you can almost feel the pain that this person is, is going through and using the spike glove as a killing device at times is, is interesting. But every frame of this film, you can clip out and just frame it. It's all just little pieces of art each one is a painting each individual scene is a painting each murder is a painting and striking imagery probably the one that gets me the most yes the killer is a is a very interesting image with the, like the faceless killer dressing the 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 trench coat and the hat playing the question apparently but regardless of that it's the uh, the drowning i don't know what it is about the way that the drowning is photographed because all the stills of that are what always sticks in my head from this film is the drowning death in the film. I, it's maybe because the actress's eyes are open the entire time and just laying in the uh, the water the way she is. It's just the, always the thing that comes to mind. It's just very serene and beautiful almost. It doesn't quite look like you've captured death, and maybe that's one of the terrifying aspects is that it's a natural capturing of death. It's not your average horror movie where it's ultra-violent and some horrific scowl on their faces, their heads being cut off. They were caught in surprise and shock, and that's what he brought to the table with what he you know, showed artistically is literally they were shocked and surprised that somebody was coming for them. Especially the character in particular you're talking about because she was really steadfast and didn't seem to give a shit about anything. So you're kind of, at this point in the movie when they have to kill again, they, you are a little bit taken aback by, I guess, who's pick. And this too, I mean, that's really one of the core aspects is you really have almost a French-style detective story. It, it really leans on the Cameron Mitchell detective angle for a good portion of what's happening, and then you have the exposition of violence. So you have to have that interest in detective stories, which I think a lot of people forget about is a core thing when it comes to Giallo, that you remember the sex... You gotta have a detective, and he's usually a prick. <laughs> I mean, in this case, he's just kind of flavorless, and a lot of that comes down to the language barrier because obviously Mitchell was speaking English and the translation and dubbing and you go so many different generations and it's redubbed. Who knows what it originally sounded like? And uh, you know, he was just kind of a stiff guy. I mean, everything he did, he kind of played that. I'm well, he was smile. also probably shit faced the entire time, which is a perfect explanation for Cameron Mitchell's career. Yeah. And the entire time he's kind of like Jan Michael Vincent, except he had both of his legs when he died. Ooh, burn Jan Michael Vincent's corpse. Rest in peace, Jan. As far as like Giallo goes, you can't really do much better than this film. There are more like visually, uh, not um, visually interesting, I guess much more wet Giallo films, much gorier well, when I you start getting the Argento later. stuff. I mean, I think this was really the precursor and everything that you can appreciate or dare say is better all comes from this. And I mean, there's a lot of nepotism with the Italian names that we talk about on this show and Mario Bava. Everyone at one point worked with him or worked around him and learned something. And Argento obviously took a lot, not just from... His relationship and the, the, the foot in the door his father and grandfather allowed him to have, but being able to appreciate and work for a few years. I don't know exactly how long he worked together, but I mean, Bava was, was shooting in the 30s and 40s and 50s. I mean, he he's, his body of work is incredibly prolific, so I assume even being behind the camera with him for a shoot or two, especially moving into the late 40s and 50s, you would you would gain an immaculate, immaculate amount of knowledge pretty quickly. And you can see it, I mean, especially like Bird with the Crystal Plumage. I mean, obviously Suspiria is the big one. That That's the big Baba influence with his use of neon and colors and how tight it is and just how it's a, it's a perfectly calibrated engine. But like his earlier work you, is... 
I guess, dare I say, more experimental, like Bird with the Crystal Plumage has the the tightness and it has that storytelling camera flow, I guess, if that makes sense, of what Bava had to offer. I mean, and this is years before things like the Steadicam, and Bava still manages to just capture movement with such fluidity. It's it's pretty amazing. And like, as far as Argento is concerned with me, we'll, we'll be getting into more Argento here shortly, dun, but dun, dun. his original, his more expenter, experimental ones, as you were saying, like uh, Burrow the Crystal Plumage, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, Cat on Ninetales, all those films, they're okay. Uh, but to me, I don't think Argento really hit his stride in the giallo genre until he made Deep Red, which I think is his probably his one of his best films. It's probably my favorite Argento film. I'm not 100% on that, but... You get a lot of shit these days, and everybody loves Suspiria, and it's a masterpiece. It's a 5 out of 5, and it's absolutely gorgeous. But Deep Red's really fucking great. I mean, it's just really, really good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. jazzy super jazzy <laughs> you really can't like i i don't think in a million years i could come up with like arguments as to why it's not the best dario argento movie i mean i really think it's it's up there i don't know what i mean i could hear an argument but i don't know what you could say that would convince me that this isn't the finest piece and i mean i don't think it's the best giallo movie ever made but deep red's fucking amazing as it is i would say like for as influential as blood and black lace was it is one of the best giallo films i don't find it like the story is interesting as a lot of the other ones i don't find the death as interesting as a lot of the other ones but just visuals alone and crafting it like a fine crafted piece of art as he did is what makes it so interesting i mean this is something that isn't really taught in film school as, as far as film history goes they'll go i mean there's probably more taught about john carpenter and guys like that than going back into baba going now ladies and gentlemen this is this is what art is this is how you turn which is basically a generic fucking crime story into a living breathing piece of artwork that will live for eternity but again the story ain't very good i'm just I'm just not hype on Blood and Black Lace's uh, script overall, but it, it doesn't matter. And I think that's the most important thing is none of that fucking matters because you will sit there with your mouth agape the entire time just going, God damn, this is beautiful. It's just if you notice things like that, if you notice the way films are shot, you will just be a gas of just like, wow, I can't believe people used to make films like that without the, the assistance of lots of CGI, without the assistance of a lot of like any special effects either. This is just straight up lighting, shadow, knowing how to set a shot, knowing how to control your actors, and knowing exactly what you're trying to get each and every scene. And it's just mastery of filmmaking. I think there's something to be said about making genre films and working in horror itself, too. Touching upon the names you learn in film school, you're exposed to guys like Fellini and Antonioni, who had very, very mild forays into horror, and a lot of the times people considered it trash or a lesser art form, but I don't think most directors are cut out to handle something, uh, like Blood and Black Lace or Giallo in general, and I think a lot of the more artistic, well-known directors that you can, you can throw out there, I'll, I'll pick on Tarantino because that's always fun, 
can't make horror films. And it's just, I mean, it could be an argument because some people really love Grindhouse and From Dust Till Dawn. I think that's a cool vampire film, but I don't really, I don't put it up there with horror. I don't, it doesn't come in big, bold lights when you say that movie to me that this is a horror film. And a lot of the, like, uh, Antonioni, I'll pick on him down too. Uh, sure, he could make one of the saddest movies you've ever seen. If you'd like to cry, check out Red Desert. It's fucking miserable. It's beautiful. I mean, the story kind of sucks because it's just about somebody folding in upon themselves because they're absolutely miserable. But by no means do I think he could do something as frightful but yet beautiful like Blood and Black Lace. And what plays off on it is the fact that the violence is, it's not over the top and sometimes it's implied, but you pointed out one of the, the most, like, ghastly kills. Somebody's face is just rubbed against a red hot iron they show it too i mean i don't know what else you want you get to see some early i guess effects and it's not that great but what's the implication is how awful the death would have been and it suits it it fits with its technicolor dreamscape it's just beautiful death and the build-up of it and just knowing how to uh set your the timing of how to do these things to really build tension what kind of makes me feel kind of shitty is Modern film school, yes, they're going to teach you a lot of things. You're going to watch Citizen Kane. You always have to watch Citizen Kane film history class. But you're also going to probably spend a shit ton of time watching like Tarantino movies, which is just like, really? I mean, sure, he's got a couple of moves, but like you skip Baba for fucking Tarantino, who is mostly just a plagiarist at this point. So I'm like, that's what kind of drives me nuts is just and he mostly steals from french fucking dramas in the first place so i mean at least if you want to get into some weird artsy horror god i can't think of the name what toby dammit by uh fellini and that's got terrence stamp in it so i mean you could at least go there if you don't want to go to bava i think it's only 45 50 minutes and it's an edgar Allan poe story by fellini woo please watch that before you dive directly into quentin tarantino yeah, and I guess that's just the sad thing to me is just the 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 litany of directors that are, have like been working throughout history and how important and influential their work has been to so many different filmmakers. And we're spending a lot of time focusing on a lot of garbage. <clears throat> like, I mean, yeah, sure. Let's let's talk about some Brian De Palma movies, definitely, especially a lot of his earlier work. But Sisters, Brian De Palma in the last like thirty years has been a fucking hack. He's barely made anything worth watching. Ridley but, Scott. So let's not go too crazy. And Ridley Scott, again, he's done some really great great stuff, but like they kind of tapered off. Even Argento to this point, it's like he's tapered oh, off. Man. Yeah. <laughs> that's. I mean, that's something, too, that uh, I, I've been going through just the hard way even recently, that I've been watching some of, some of Dario's 90s movies. And it's baffling, because it's like, man, I mean, even fucking making a Tarantino reference, what happened to your ass? You used to be beautiful. And, like, Jackie Brown, that's where that quote comes from. Quentin Tarantino has the capability of making a damn fine motion picture, and we all know it, and he knows it. And unfortunately, his uh, inflated ego has never been stamped out so now he makes whatever he wants to make and great whatever that's fine I'm not bitching because he gets to do whatever he wants to do I just don't like it I just don't get into it Argento is just such a different story though it's like you just stop doing anything good and it's like I, I, I've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I think it's it's as masturbatorial as the house that Jack built the difference is it looks pretty cool all the actors are pretty cool soundtrack's pretty cool I like to watch Tarantino jerk off, I guess I can say. I don't like to watch Lars von Tears masturbate and laugh at the same time. It freaks me out a little bit. But Argento just became 
horrible. <laughs> just, I mean, I mean, some of the stuff in the 90s, like I watched Trauma the other night. It's a bad movie, but it's watchable. Dracula, on the other hand, do you like Hitchcock? <laughs> um, uh, the the card player is pretty reprehensible. The, the film with Adrian Brody's Giallo itself. Fucking horrible. What happened? Yeah. Well, to, to, like, as I understand it, like, from what I feel, like, Argento stopped making movies that he cared about, and he started making movies that he thought other people would care about, just as, like, well, this is what people want out of me. No, it's this not. Is, this is the thing that I used to do, right? This is These are the things you like from my movies. Like, no. No. Did he get a didn't. head injury around, like, 1991, and it's just, like, no one wanted to tell him anymore that he can't do good, and they just let him keep... And, I mean, I'm sure we'll get a ration of shit. I think a lot of it honestly is you start to buy your own fucking hype and you start to listen to the, like people who've been sucking your dick forever and go, Oh really? Oh, I guess I, I really, yeah, I'm a true artist. And like, as opposed to keep striving and like improving and ladies and gentlemen, doing- the point of this is if you ever start loving yourself as an artist, you're not, your art's going to suck. You're fucked. Yeah. You have to you're gonna be <laughs> fucked, dude. Seriously. Cause Fuel like, with look hate. at all these seventies direct, like, Scorsese is the only director who like came to prominence in the seventies who's still making films that can be like halfway decent. Most of them are just like, what the fuck happened to you? Like watch what, what the fuck was the name of that? Was it passion passions or something? It's a Brian De Palma film with a uh, Nomi replace. And uh, I don't remember who else is in it. It is fucking garbage. It is a complete piece of shit. And I'm, I'm harping a little bit on Brian De Palma. I know that, but <laughs> Yeah, it's like, what audience are we making this for? We've shit all over Tarantino. We've shit on De Palma. Then I've spent 10 minutes saying, yeah, Dario Argento has sucked for 35 years. (laughs) It's just, it's it's all 100% true, though, because... Yeah, it is. I mean, people can hate all they want to, but objectively... got told so much that, wow, you're a master filmmaker, and they're oh, I guess I am. Uh, Let's do this. That's a terrible idea. Well, don't question me. I'm a master filmmaker. And that's where you fucking lose it. And I will eat shit for this right now. I thought his last few movies were uh, a little sketchy at best, but I never thought they were terrible. But like Romero never particularly bought his own hype because he never was given any like credit. I mean, he was throughout the year. I mean, he's career of Nightling Dead and all that, but they never gave him money. He was never given any money to make a movie and he had to, he had to work and strive and keep pushing himself. So even up until like, I mean, say what you want to about land of the dead. I think it has a lot of moments in it. Dire of the dead. Fuck all you. I think it's got a lot of good moments in it. Survival of the dead is where I kind of draw the line and go, Oh, that's oof. You're pushing it on that one. I even like bruiser for God's sakes. I think bruiser's got a lot of good stuff in it, but he was never just giving carte blanche. He had to push himself. And Oliver Stone, you're going to make a, what, a six-hour movie about Alexander the Great? Are you shitting me? Whose idea was this? I think one of the biggest differences with Ramiro is, it's, and I don't want to paraphrase anything here, but I really don't think he ever actually believed in himself. I think he was knocked down and dragged around so many times that when he was given an opportunity by the time it came to the late 90s, it was almost like a PTSD situation that, you know, when are they going to pull my money? When are they going to fuck with me? When are they going to do what they did every single time before? And his products just sort of existed. They just, you know, we we all have said it before we lived and grew up and came up in an era that it was lucky to have a new Ramiro movie. And no matter how bad some of them are, 
I'll always appreciate the fact that I got to see them and embrace them. But to me, the end of his career just kind of seemed like a vacant guy, similar to how you've, you've worded Argento that was just putting out something for people. Just just putting out a product. But I don't I mean it's not that I don't believe in the messages behind things like land and survival. I too somewhat like Bruiser. I really don't have any hate for it. I, I just don't see the dawn of the dead. I don't see Martin Knight Rider. I don't see that message. I think by the time Land of the Dead came out, he had already figured out what to do with the dragon and what the dragon was and you know that that was kind of it for George. I think he, I mean, he left Pittsburgh and went to Toronto, and I think that was a big sign. That's a big, that's, yeah, that's a big part of it. It's a big chunk of it is. And also, like, he had been shit on for so long throughout the, like, mid to late 80s, throughout the 90s, and just not being able to get work. I think he was just happy to get anything done. But he still had a few Romero-esque things thrown in there that, still makes some of those films have some feeling behind them and have some like I will argue to the death and I like the opening night I went to go see Land of the Dead and I was like well that was kind of disappointing in a lot of ways and it's really goofy and it's got bad CGI in it but there's also subsequently in viewings of it like there's a lot of mood and emotion in that film that I think he did really really well at but again I think more than anything he gave no shits to the human characters in that fucking movie. And all he wanted to do was film zombies the entire time. And all the zombie shit's great, so whatever. The only remarkably human character in Land of the Dead, unfortunately, is Dennis Hopper. And if that says anything about society and you disagree with me, just turn on the news and look at who the fucking president is and tell me I'm wrong. So yeah, that's actually a really Romero-y picture when you really look at it and how time is now. George had quite the way of predicting the future. Guys like him and David Cronenberg, I would certainly say, are prophetic to what our times have become. Though despite all of this being pretty good, has nothing to do with Blood and Black Lace, which I think we're laced it up. We've Blood and Black Laced it out. I don't know. I was trying to come up with a joke. Yeah, I mean, we, we've gone off on a tangent on how um, all these amazing directors have turned into giant fucking turds. All of it really has a place, though. I mean, because we're this whole month we're celebrating slashers and the history and the, the genus of slashers and where they come from. But at its core, too, I mean, what Death by DVD started out as, and I think... Uh, one of our biggest passions is horror. So, I mean, we've spent a lot of our life studying and worshipping all of these people. So it's not like, man, Ramiro's last movie sucked. Argento hasn't made anything good in 35 years. No, he hasn't. And I've still watched them all and appreciate them on the same level. I'm not just going to shit all over it because he's not made Suspiria repeatedly. And I think that's how people misinterpret things. When you say a product isn't necessarily good, when you don't connect with a piece of art, it's just assumed like you're shit-talking them. No, we were just shit-talking Tarantino. Okay. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, shit talking and <laughs> Argento's career, let's get into our next film, which I'm not going to set a, like a, a definitive timeline, but to me, the next film we're talking about, which is Argento's opera, is honestly one of the last really good giallo films. Um, that's kind of the cutoff point for me. It was like 88, 89, somewhere in there. Because the stuff through the 90s was very forced. All of Argento's stuff in the 90s was like trauma- it's pretty crappy. I think the last decent movie he made personally is Sleepless, and that was just okay. I hated the Stendhal syndrome. I've hated all, most of Argento's stuff since past opera, but I think opera is his last one that I can see a lot of uh, try in him and a lot of artistry, especially in the filmings of the uh, the murders, because at the end of the day, opera, the script is pretty fucking weak. The general idea here is, hey, Murders at an opera. 
That's basically it. But there's an understudy who takes over. For it's not this, uh... Phantom of the Opera, though. It's funny. So often this is misconstrued. As I thought this was Phantom of the Opera. No, that's oh, Dario. He made that too, and it's garbage. Yeah, that's with Julian Sands and his daughter. That's just Phantom of the Opera. A completely different movie. This is the one with the eyes. And basically, it's an understudy taking over for a famous actress. It's her first opera to star in, and it has a lot to do with fucking Macbeth. And uh, Macbeth being, like, the most cursed um, story you can try to perform on stage. Well, I mean, it's a whole—I I think a lot of the, the curse is left out, but it's handled appropriately. I mean, they try and build up, which it's, a, I guess, a known fact in, in Thespians that you're not supposed to talk about the play. You're not supposed to say the name of the play, and that's what ends up cursing it. So while the production's on, if you mention that you're in Macbeth or say Macbeth, that's what sets all the bad luck off. And they, they just throw that rule right out the window, because the first 20 minutes, they don't let you forget that it's— Macbeth. They continuously keep mentioning it. Uh, before we get super deep, though, one thing I thought was really pleasant with Blood and Black Lace and Dario Genta's opera is both of these movies really complement each other as a double feature because both of them have very, very similar settings. I wouldn't say the murders are, are quite the same, but I think the fashion they're handled in have a really nice contrast. And you go from, with Bava, this beautiful neon technicolor sort of dream and Argento shot in an actual opera house. So you have this just a, a gorgeous setting. It's just phenomenally beautiful. Oh, the sets are amazing in opera. Yeah, I mean, it's an Italian opera house. So, I mean, you you are just exposed to, on both of these movies, uh, Just it's incredibly beautiful. They're they're wonderful to watch back to back. Basically, the device devices he uses to set up the murders in this film is what makes it impressive. Because uh, you have the idea of making someone watch you kill people that they care about. And how do you do that is you tie them up and tape straight pins under their eyes so they can't close their eyes and th that alone makes you wince the entire movie of just thinking about your eyelids smacking down on a pen every time you have to close it and you have to close them every once in a while because i mean your eyes dry out all that sh shit so she does get injured every time that her eye blinks and it's just this, this little torture device that is used throughout the film as well as the murders that are um completed throughout the film and Probably the one that gets me the most is the uh, the scissors murder of the uh, the seamstress or the costume costumist whatever, and how he like uses the scissors to cut her open to remove this this MacGuffin, this fucking ridiculous like bracelet thing that they've got going on to figure out who the killer is. The killer lost his bracelet. Well, that too is another contrast with Blood and Black Blaze because a big plot device for that entire movie is a diary that has all of the sacred information that would expose who the killer or killers might possibly be. And again, in this movie, now you've got the bracelet to the extent that the horrifying burning of the woman to death with her face in Blood and Black Blaze is because of the diary. So you've got two really great, again, I mean, the whole movie can just, I could domino back and forth the differences between these two so I implore you please watch it yourself but that I mean and it's funny back to back I really think with Blood and Black Lace that the drowning is one of the most stark but yet beautiful depictions of death and then when you move into opera really the most stunning is when you that that visceral nasty sound when he's sawing her open with the scissors and then he reaches inside and it's not too much it's not like the overly wet gushy Lucio no, Fulci. Fulci yeah yeah <laughs> It's got some subtlety, and it's pretty good at at, at, at its subtle nature. But also at that same time, the uh, the first um, big murder of William McNamara, the random American actor in the film who's been dubbed with a British accent for whatever reason. Um, and after... it doesn't fit. He's got, like, the most baritone voice in this movie, and every time he comes on stage and he, he, he moves into the scene, it's just this, like, Clive Owens baritone British accent. Hello. Out of this. Yeah, he's, like, 19. <laughs> it's really funny. Um... 
Makes me laugh. Well, he's such a California dude too in um in real life, like William McNamara. He's just hey man, he's that's his kind of his accent and just <laughs> yeah, like the, when he first popped fit. up on like what is going on with his voice with this really dainty British accent he has. But his murder is pretty amazing too. The uh the setup of the knife going up into the um under like I don't know, under the jaw? Through the, the skin between the uh the jaw and the, the mouth. And just that, how the pain that must feel and seeing the knife shoot through and like glancing off the teeth and hearing those noises. Then that's when Argento is really at his best is setting up pain and he sets it up so well. Like it. Well, especially for the fact that it's mid scream. It's not just like it's just a jutting stabbing and the character is taken by surprise that he's screaming when it happens. So you have that great shot of the inside of his mouth and the knife going inside of it and, and clicking it's, off his teeth. Yeah, you can you can noise. feel it. I mean, you've accidentally stabbed yourself with a fork eating a salad beforehand. So just imagine, you know, actually something fully penetrating and again Dario always has a very sexual nature with his murders it's always intense penetration it's a Jamie Gillis level of a penetration when it comes to Dario and a knife and it's it's just it's pseudo sexual beauty I guess you could say in a, in a big fancy term it's it's hot but it's one of those things that you should feel a little disgusted over being like oh that's that's kind of hot because it's violence and death well it's it's also the like the paper cut premise because a lot of you know the old adage of um, having a paper cut in a film is almost more violent than having, you know, like some super crazy over uh, overly done murder because people can empathize with the paper cut. They've had a paper cut before. And what Argento tends to do, or at least he used to anyway, he found the soft parts to stab, basically is what I'm saying. The things that really make your, like, your fucking toes curl up. Because when he's killing, uh, the killer's killing William McNamara, he stabs him through the hand. He stabs him uh, up through his his jawbone. He stabs in all these like places that you can honestly feel the pain of. You know how much that would hurt. You know how and how odd it is. The same thing goes for something like Deep Red with smacking the guy's face and knocking his teeth on the uh, the uh, fireplace hearth. That's the word I'm looking for. That is what Argento is peak at. Is really orchestrating murders that are beautifully shot beautifully articulated and also incredibly painful and a pain that you can feel and understand in yourself. Now he also has an idea that somehow Ravens can like fucking remember who's hurt them and they can get revenge. Well, there is a validity bullshit. to that, but he, he really didn't take a lot of time to explain it. And there's a, there's a, a great deal of studies and a lot of strange proof, especially like uh, you can leave tokens of appreciation, shiny things. Ravens will take them from the yard and will bring you back other things. They have been known to recognize the faces of people that hurt them. They seem to have a familial bond with communication. And when they're domesticated to a sense with caretakers, they remember them. They seem to have even a communication. They're perfect detectives. <laughs> it's just weird. It's just weird to me. Well, I mean, he sets it up, and uh, the problem with it is if you had maybe had a scene with one of the detectives or anybody else, one of the actors, the director of the play, and just had, like, Ian Charleston's character say, you know... Ravens can remember the faces of people that harm them. Then when that scene came into action later, you'd be like, hey, 
you know, Ravens can fucking remember the blah, 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 blah. And it would have made some form of sense, but you've just got uh, the, the masked killer fucks with some Ravens, and then to expose him at the end of the film, let's release the Raven. But there's there's no devices for it, and this is one of the only problems I really have with opera. This and a something else. So that aside, you, you, you just get the end. This is one of, it's so non-consequential, it doesn't even really fucking matter, because at the very end of the movie, it's like, this is why I've been doing this, by the way, the entire time. Roll credits. And I don't even really seem to care like it it was more entertaining with just like you know killers motives are dumb like they're completely unclear throughout the film and then when you're told what the motive is it's like okay whatever dumb and then you have the incredibly stupid plot device of him faking his death so he could come back and like try to murder at the end for a five minute which seems like an extra film scene it seems like like a studio note almost or something i don't know it just seems like random weird to me, it feels like, hey, I'm going to connect this to phenomena. Like, I'm going to go back to Switzerland, and, like, there's this weird... I And I, I don't know if I'm reading into it right, but at the end of the movie, you've got that really weird scene with the lizard where she helps the lizard. But, spoilers, her mother was a serial killer S. And her young boyfriend was helping her kill and murder till her heart's content, and he eventually thought she was, uh, I, I don't know, too bloodthirsty and killed her. He thought that her daughter, who is the lead in the movie, Betty, is her reincarnate. And I didn't know if they were maybe suggesting kind of like at the end of Psycho where Anthony Perkins is sitting and is like, I'm not even going to hit the fly and they're going to think I'm so awesome and they're going to let me out one day. So she goes down and lets the lizard go and it's like, I I would never hurt anything. I'm definitely not my mom. I don't know if I read into it too much there, but I thought maybe that was kind of like one of those. I mean, and Argento's a big Hitchcock fan. That's what's implied in that scene, but I just think it's completely unnecessary because we haven't really even set up that that's what this character is like almost destined to be a, like a serial killer type thing. It's just like, it just seems somewhat out of place because so much of it is her being a victim throughout the film and being incredibly dainty and incredibly vulnerable throughout the entire movie. And now you're questioning, like, should I feel bad for her? Is she going to go hurt people? Yeah. Like, what are you trying to imply? I, I mean, the, the there's a sequence where everything could have been extinguished and, and handily dealt with toward... What, I'd say 20 minutes before that. I mean, the burning sequence, I think, is where the ending... Well, you could have released all the information right then and there and let it end, and things would have been fine, and I think it would have been a bit more of a remarkable film. Well, and so the... This scene is a nice build-up, and it's a good set piece. It's a great set piece, and it's, like, climatic. And then we, like, film an extra five minutes of anticlimactic weird shit at the end, and it just does not fit. It has never fit for me. But the rest of the film flows really well. I mean, you go from that massive raven sequence to the burning sequence, and it's it's. I like it. I like the birds. I think it's really clever, but I really think Argento needed to have put something using that a, a little bit more of a tool. There were multiple characters, and this too is just one of those, let's kill everyone giallos. All, the cast doesn't matter. Everyone's expendable. Don't like anyone because they're going to die. With so many people available working with these goddamn ravens, they could have said one informative well, thing. They mentioned a little bit about that, but it's just, it's, I guess they didn't want to be too nail on the head or i guess that's the I, term see, but that's confusing too because that's like the thir- the first of three false endings like we caught the killer oh no wait the killer's not been caught there's going to be another scene oh no wait 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 it's not and so i mean it uh, does it even really matter but it's stu- too at this era of argento's storytelling it's just not quite as firm as some of the earlier he should 80s. be better than this at this point as far as deep as he is into his career, he should have known better than to add a lot of this kind of additional nonsense to it. But 
I also am a big fan of uh, Daria Nicolotti's uh, murder in this film. Man, he loves killing his wife. Every time... His, his ex, and so that might have something to do with it. Because this truly is one of the most grisly ways he has he's ever managed to kill her. And it's funny. Well, it's, not even, it's not even crazy violent. It's the setup of it, of shooting through a keyhole and seeing the bullet break through the layers of glass until it smacks her right in the eyeball. And it's just like, that is interesting. That is an interesting shot. That is an interesting concept I haven't seen before. And it's done like in this very artfully done way. And he had since like he's attempted that in other films like in the Stendhal syndrome but he used like a lot of CGI to do it and I don't know why the Italians thought that they were like capable of doing CGI effects at that time period they well, may maybe have gotten better at this point but no Dracula's not even that old that giant fucking grasshopper or whatever Rutger Hauer turns into that was awful Oh, that, that, I mean, that's pretty terrible, too. But I'm like specifically talking about like, the Stendhal Syndrome. There is CGI in that movie that is laughable. Like, the Phantom of the Opera, same thing. It's just like, please stop putting these weird cartoons in here. You are fucking your movie up. What are you doing? It's definitely got to be budgetary because the way that shot was specifically done, I mean, they made a pretty massive tunnel and then used a ball to shoot through it. And, of course, special effects on the back of Daria's head. Well, I mean, something, too, we've neglected is how beautiful the shots of the Ravens when they're released into the theater is. And the way that was shot is mind-numbing. I mean, they literally took the chandelier out of the top of this opera house. And it is the uh, Reggio di Parma? I, I don't know. I don't speak Italian at all. Something in Parma, Italy. It's the opera house in Parma. They took down the massive chandelier in the middle of it and had these giant, like... When they build skyscraper beams that were lowered down on two ends and then put the camera in a little casing inside of it so it could move up and down and then swoop and go from every single massive angle as if it was the bird and going right down into someone's face. Just thousands and thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of work put into, I guess, what you would even say in the, the late 80s was an ancient opera house. I mean, it's at least two, three hundred years old. And the fact that they actually shot inside a, an actual Italian opera house really adds to the nature of the movie. But this is really one one of the last incredibly insane big budget lots of cameras which like Dario himself says this is one of his favorite movies but he is often heard saying the camera is his one true love I think this is one of his last like love letters with a real camera actually shooting big massive budgets because that's what no matter the story that's what make this movie mesmerizing because it fucking looks just incredible as far as I'm concerned because I caught this when it came out on home video as terror at the opera, because in America, we can't just have a movie called opera. No, 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 no. It's terror at the I opera. I mean, literally, though, that was one of the problems with The Sopranos going into its first season, that HBO was fighting David Chase and company because people are going to think it's about music. No one's going to sit down and watch a show that they think is about music. And that's a sad state for the American audience and probably why we've missed out on so many fucking amazing things, because we're all stupid. Well, like watching this on videotape and it was cut because there was an R-rated and I think there was an unrated uh, version. I think I saw the R-rated first, uh, which has, uh, you know, a good chunk of the violence cut out. And I was like, OK, this is a little bit disappointing. And God, did they add that ending on in America? Stupid. And then I finally see the, you know, the original intended director's cut Italian version. And then I'm still like, oh, Dumb. So the ending is still here. Why the fuck is this stupid fucking ending still on here? Was that not a studio note? Jesus, Dario, what the fuck were you thinking? But I guess that's just a setup for where his career was going after this of like knowing, not knowing when to say when and just keeps going. Like you just watch trauma. 
what the fuck is going on in trauma? Well, I, I wanted to, to bring this up earlier, too, but um, but before I forget what I was going to say, I really think the end of this movie came down to the fact that he had some extra money budgetarily and really enjoyed where they shot in Switzerland, like two scenes for Phenomena. And I've heard him say it. I just really liked shooting Phenomena. And I, I don't know. I think he had extra money and wanted to spend every goddamn cent. And <laughs> they unfortunately kill a character that you were kind of rooting for the entire time. And then it all goes black. And it's just a, a very confusing statement. But trauma, really, what separates it from some of the magic of Dario Argento is there's no uh, there's no sex with your violence. There's no deep penetrative kills. It's there's like, not much art. There's not much setup in the murders. And like... I remember reading in Fangoria magazine that Dario had come up with this amazing new like concept and this device that he's going to use to decapitate people in his what next is it? film. It's like what you carve turkey with at Thanksgiving, and Tom Savini did the fucking it's, effects. It's a fishing line that's hooked up to like a weird fucking box that like sucks the fishing line in. I don't know what the fuck it is. It just like it's it's a wire that garrets people. Who gives a shit? What are you talking about? Some crazy new device. I'm going to spoil the shit out of this movie, but I'm sitting in fucking bed watching this and woke up straight laughing too hard when you find out who the goddamn fucking killer is. Pete Bartell's wife has been sawing people's head off with this electric toothbrush for the last 90 minutes, and I just was baffled. Like, this is that Dario Argento? It's not another guy with the same name? It's the same <laughs> guy that did Deep Red? Are you shitting me? And I've never seen trauma before. I've seen Stendhal Syndrome, and it's funny. I, I don't know why. I always thought that was a really really great movie and i watched it two or three years ago and was like what type of fucking weed did i smoke in high school what was wrong <laughs> i mean how did i ever think that this was even somewhat entertaining and isn't it awkward how much he likes to get his daughter to take her clothes off i don't know if that unsettles you yeah but this is the first uh, in that series of my daughter take your top off what the fuck are you doing Dario? <laughs> stop getting your daughter naked in all your movies it's weird it's fucking bizarre she didn't look even of age until around 30 and that's really she the was, uncomfortable just part. just turned 18 i think and trauma she had just turned 18. congratulations dario argento you've managed to make all of us uncomfortable and sigh with disapproval what happened to you what oh, also in trauma the addition of christopher rydell as the, the main uh male lead is shit. He was he's not a good actor. He not is at all. just he's very like weak throughout the entire film. I would prefer they would cut him out totally and just had Asia doing her thing and like trying to find the killer herself as opposed to this weird, you know, runaway broken girl thing that they got going on in the movie. I just wasn't a fan because I remember buying a bootleg of this. It was a work print because it hadn't officially come out anywhere. It was a work print that they had done a uh, temp score on to you know to shop around whatever and they usually use copyright music for temp scores i'm pretty sure there was um pieces of score from aliens beetlejuice can't remember what else but it's really fucking off-putting incredibly off-putting and that was like my exposure to drama I was just like what the fuck is this movie why is it like this and subsequently i've gone back and seen you know the the actual version of it with its intended score and it's a little bit better but it's not much not better because overall it's just kind of weak entry but again light years ahead of dracula 3d or any other shit 
I think in going into the 90s and especially the 2000s, outside of losing sort of the penetrative nature of, of his sexual deaths and how beautiful it was, the awkward male lead was kind of lost in the art of Argento. And he always had very interesting but awkward, and I, I don't know how to say it any better, but uh, characters that generally you would expect to be in a masculine role, almost Humphrey Bogart, Sam Spade characters, but they all took more of a feminine approach to what was happening in the situation, like David Hemmings, for example. He would always manipulate the situation and what was going to be very macho and he's going to save the day turned out not to quite be what happened and he i wouldn't say changed gender roles or had something uh, a statement to say about gender roles but he always manipulated the what you would consider egotistical male lead to be and again this is just sort of a theme with giallo and italian cinema in general no one is quite who they are perceived to be that's something you learn with all of these movies everyone is hiding something there's a dark seedy underbelly to the beautiful nature of life etc 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 you move into the 90s and that's just lost it's just casual characters that really have no value and then you've got something like like Giallo with uh, Adrian Brody. It's like, I'm a detective. Check me out. I'm a guy. I'm a dude. I'm famous. Yeah, I, Nothing. He, he There's no lost soul. all of it. It's, it's the one that broke my heart the most. I mean, yes, Francis Ford Coppola made Jack, and that's pretty fucking heartbreaking, but like, <laughs> throughout the 90s and the 2000s, <laughs> the watching what happened to Argento is just like every, like, every one of them. And when it was like, okay, Stendhal Syndrome, uh, that's not very good. All right, fan of the opera. Oh, shit, this is even worse. And then Sleepless comes out. Okay, this is it's okay. I, I I can accept this one. It's it's pretty like it's not great, but it's it's a little bit back to par for Argento anyway. And then I can't remember what came after that. I was just like, dude, I'm fucking done. You're. And do you like Hitchcock came out oh, in the mid 2000s? Oh the card player for me. I saw the card player. I went, what the fuck is this? This is shit. I think it's hard to watch your heroes just become average or realize that maybe they were average the entire time. I mean, I don't think there's no lack of artistry and genius to Dario Argento, but it's kind of baffling how those days are so far gone. I mean, we just were saying that we lived in an era that we felt lucky to get a Romero movie, and it's odd we don't say that about Argento. But, I mean, I don't know. Survival of the Dead far trumps Do You Like Hitchcock by a lot, a whole lot, like a, a big lot. I don't know what else to say, you know? I mean, <laughs> Cause, well, I God mean, bless you. There's, there's things in there that really work, but, again, hampered by terrible CGI. And, plus, I think Romero was already possibly realizing that he was dying at that point. I don't know, because he was just, like, having fun. Like, it's just, what are you doing, man? Well, I mean, I don't want to, like, make it come off like we're just ranting and, like, fuck Argento, it should have been him. But it just comes to a point <laughs> no, of... <laughs> no, but... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean it that way in the least Should have been you, bit, Gordy. Just... Should have been you. <laughs> <laughs> we're not trying to shame Argento for making art. It just gets to a point that I can't look at you in the face and say the card player is okay it isn't it's a fucking lie it's just not good none of it's good and it's like three decades at this point of really bad stuff not like two or three bad movies i mean even guys like oliver stone you can maybe give a little bit more credit than dario argento but still fuck that guy he's such a cocksucker <laughs> I, I just have no place anymore. I feel as a society, we've grown past the need for Oliver Stone. I just, we don't need him anymore. It's fine. He'll go to Russia and make films for Putin. He'll make him the next Steven Seagal movie in Russia. Let's go. Woo! It's sad, you know. Eddie Van Halen just died. Uh, all these people that keep dying, and none of them are Mitch McConnell or Oliver Stone. 
Funny how the world works. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. That's it for this episode of Death by DVD. We will be back with more slashers until the end of Halloween, which we'll be celebrating with more slashers. Good night. On the next episode of Death by DVD. We continue our month-long celebration of slashers. Slashers out your ass! Where we will dump a slew of slashers you may or may not have heard of before. Two slasher films every episode until the week of Halloween. On the next episode, a Canadian slasher that stays on track. The Crazy Cap Classic. Can you figure it out? Find out next week on Death by DVD. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. <laughs>